0: Our whole immune system is designed to be challenged. You've got to let kids crawl out in the mud and ingest that mud and that's bacteria and stuff to develop that internal immune system in your gut. Kids have got to be able to run and jump to develop their long bones. And so what we're doing is breeding, if we're not careful, and it's the evidence is starting to show with diseases and those sorts of consequences, we're we're developing a, a maladapted species.
1: That was Charlie Massey and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and future.
2: G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott and in this podcast series I'll be uncovering the world of regenerative agriculture, its people, practices and principles and empowering you to apply their learnings and experience to your business and life. I'm an eighth-generational Australian farmer who transitioned my family farm from industrial methods to holistic regenerative practices. Join me as I dive deep into the regenerative journeys of other farmers, chefs, health practitioners and anyone else who's up for yarn and find out why and how they transition to a more regenerative way of life.
1: Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with Charlie Arnott.
2: G'day, we're back with part two of the Charlie Massey interview. Um, in this interview, we talk about uh, human health, mental health, um, regenerative uh, farming certification, uh, the perfect farmer's job description, and uh, a number of many other things, complex adaptive systems, um, working with nature and, uh, and finding one's purpose. Um, I hope you enjoy this uh, part two episode of Charlie Massey. Now, what was my next question, Charlie? Oh, no. Do you Complex want to do that? Yeah, let's do that yeah.
0: while it's fresh. I think this is important. Um, and I didn't really think of it and it really wasn't written anywhere. I had to dig it out of a lot of good scientific ecological literature. And it, so it wasn't until I went to uni in, in the late 2000s and maybe I'm a slow learner and other people were aware of it, but I wasn't, um, <clears throat> in that when the computer era came in, that in many ways led to what's called systems thinking. Thinking, starting to analyse and get a handle on how these complex systems like computers and, and um, big business operations and supply chains, how, how that complexity worked. And um, then people realise, hang on, nature and, and uh, a landscape, a, a catchment, uh, the planet. Is actually a complex system. Mm. And then they realised that if it's healthy, it's adaptive. It's what's called a complex adaptive system. So if you push in here and disturb within it, it's got all sorts of solutions from its past history, which can be millions of years if you're talking about nature, that will find a solution. So um, I ended up having to – I've done a bit of teaching to university students since I've – um, left, did my PhD and and I was teaching masters and third years at ANU and and I had to teach um, didn't have to I thought it was important um, did a couple of lectures on complex adaptive systems so I had to go right into it and there's about twelve traits I'm not going to bore you with them you know obviously biodiversity is important all that sort of stuff but um one of the we'll,
2: we'll go there if you know you yeah, know if you think it's going to help help those no I don't I don't
0: I don't think we need to but um. One of the key properties is what are called emergent properties. Uh, and that's, <clears throat> that's the name they've given to these past historical or present um, elements within the system um, that will emerge when it needs to adapt. The solutions lie within. Mm. So sometimes they, they call these systems complex emergent systems, not just complex adaptive systems. I mean, if you think about the World Wide Web as it was evolving, it's a complex adaptive system. Someone invents an internet, people invent a hundred things that you can then start doing with it. Facebook emerges, da-da-da-da-da. It, it's, it's the same. It's, it's a human system but it's a complex adaptive system. Mm. Nature is very much that and so industrial farming takes out those emergent solutions, simplifies it down to the basics and so it can't react to a pest attack. It's You haven't got the deep roots and the, the ground is bare, so you get erosion or salt rises because we've chopped down the trees that kept the water table lower to stop and you know, that, those sorts of things. And so our role is, is to, I see it, my it's a strange way of putting it, but I see my role is to try and restore the complex adaptive systems around here to much greater resilience and diversity by rebuilding those emergent properties in it.
2: And I guess it's, a, it's as much about the, um, the diversity that exists within that and, and the solutions, as you say, that are sitting there waiting for their the opportunity and they're almost um, recruited at the right time, aren't they? They're like they're waiting there. You know, in, in the example I've and, and David Marsh had sort of really been mentoring me about this and demonstrating it and I've seen it hundred percent at home is, you know, old cropping paddocks left not sown to anything, and then, you know, some years later there's species turning up because they need to be there at that point in time. We've, we've sort of opened a window for them to then step into and do a job, you know, in that landscape. They're emerging back and they may not have been there for 50, 100 years and I don't know where, what they've been doing,
0: just waiting for… Yep. just give them a chance.
2: Well, waiting for me to stop being a dickhead, really. <laughs> that's right. Yeah.
0: And that's what a weed is. I mean, a, a weed is sort of your primary invader uh, you take a bushfire in Australia, the first things in are the wattles because they're pumping nitrogen in to kick the whole process. So a weed is punching through compacted soil to try and get deeper nutrients further down, and your thistles and all that sort of stuff. Um, if you've got too many thistles all the time, it's because they haven't done their job yet and you're, you're creating a system that's too simple. So um, these, these emergent properties are, are crucial and uh, what in, what industrial agriculture does really is simplify the whole thing down so it can't function properly and as you say once we step back take the handcuffs off nature will have the solutions i mean and you can help it along through ecological mm-hmm. grazing or multi-species covers to get the soil biology going really quickly etc etc uh, and deep-rooted trees but um eventually she'll work out not always because Without going into complex ecological theory, there there is um, really good research under what's called resilience theory that says if you've got a healthy landscape here and you degrade it too far, it'll go to a stage that it's almost impossible to get it back up to where it was. Yeah, right. And you've taken it to a lower basin level and only through exceptional sort of inputs can you move it. So you've got to – and I'm thinking about deeply eroded creeks – dry salinity, that sort of stuff. It's mm-hmm. going to take a long while to turn some of that, if ever. And once you've eroded a creek, you know, you drive around Australia, you see eroded creeks everywhere. There's no such thing in 1770. No. It's, no. A, it's, it's a white European settler-made effect. And uh, once you've cut through that, that water course, it's very hard to uh, restore that original uh, uh, water cycle function in that area. Often not without mechanical you know, intervention, isn't yeah, it? High you know? energy input, that's right, which is causing its own problems in other directions, yeah. That's right.
2: Um, the... Oh, another cracking thing to say there, but I can't remember what I was going to say now. Um, oh, that's right. The Well, I think it's interesting that over the last 230 years, we have... Australian farmers have managed to create the most effective drainage system we possibly could have installed in the landscape, haven't we? Like through through our management, we've we're essentially just it's almost like we don't want the water to stay there. We're just going, yep, now we're gonna send you down there and I'm gonna get that one even deeper and I'm gonna make my pipes, you know, it's almost like we're set up this great yep.
0: system. Let's it's call just, it drain system. Drain. Because that the landscape is when it's healthily functioning, tries to capture and hold mm. as much water as it can. We've mm. um, done the opposite. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And it's you know, the whole murray darling issue um yeah let's not go there but um <laughs> where you've got giant corporations issues damming most of the water at the top but uh that's uh that's a human muddle of politics mm. and all the rest of it and uh with devastating consequences it's interesting you know sometimes
2: here when you when when one talks about you know retaining water in the landscape um by you know whether it's dams or it's, it might be, you know, probably ideally um, pasture and restoring some habitat and, and, and sort of landscape function so it actually doesn't just take off down the thing. You often have, you know, find people saying, oh, well, what about the rivers? You know, we what the rivers will starve. will we know rivers? I say, yes, there will be rivers, but it just means that the water that's in the river probably took 20 years to get there as opposed to two minutes. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a whole different way of thinking about function. I mean, I don't think many – I certainly didn't think about – farming until, you know, I started my journey. The word function didn't
0: didn't there was no word function in my vocabulary about landscape. Well oh, join the club, I think with most of us trained under the industrial model. Mm-hmm. And uh <clears throat> it's a really critical point you're you're raising because um picking up on ecologists and Alan Saby outlined it in his teaching and his his early book on holistic management, but it's there in a lot of the ecology that you can really look at it the way a landscape functions by looking at the four the biogeophysical functions, which is obviously the solar energy. Uh, the solar function is paramount because you've got to have more, you've got to have green plants to capture that carbon dioxide, turn it into sugars, which feeds the plants, which feeds the soil biology. And if it's really functioning well, it's going to lay down long-term carbon. So that's critical. And, th- and therefore from that comes a healthy water cycle because... A healthy soil, it's about 50% air space, It's going to store a huge amount of water in combination with the carbon. And that impacts on the soil mineral cycle because once you get all those sugars in the soil and your biology is working, they're the guys that go and access all your nutrients. You know, and plenty of examples, for example, your, your root fungus, your ectomycorrhizal root fungus. Um, in a healthy soil, you look at a cubic meter. Um, they're micro-feeding tubes, they have a partnership with plants. The plants give them the sugars. Mm. They go off and source the food for the plants. You know, a nice symbiotic bargain. But in a cubic metre of healthy soil, they might have 25,000 kilometres of these microtubes. tubes To be it. Well, compare that to an industrial soil. Yeah. You've, you've poisoned all the fungus and, the, and almost all the other desirable biology. Or torn it up or turn it up, but it's not there. Mm. And um, so you've got these drug addict plants waiting for their fertiliser dose and uh, those 25,000 kilometres of tubes aren't working away to get uh, zillions of nutrients and micronutrients and minerals into the food and that impacts directly on why. We haven't got to the health side yet. Mm. That impacts on why modern industrial food is causing all these diseases, both through what's not in it because the biology is not there, but it's also what negative things are in it, which is some of the chemicals and particularly bad ones like glyphosate that we now know is wreaking havoc on human health.
2: Let's talk about that. That's, that I think that's the, that's, that's the point. That's, okay, that's, that's a nice non-controversial one, is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice subtle segue to that. No, I think it's really important to talk about because, you know, I was on a, um, did a little podcast interview with some guys one was in LA, and one was in Q8 the other day, and one was a doctor, and one was a psychi- psychologist, psychologist. I think it was a psychiatrist. Sorry, um, Arlie's, if I've forgotten which one you were. And we talked about this about food, and um, and it it wasn't that I was you know talking gobbledygook, but I think what what was apparent was the I guess the um, appreciation of the fact that. That yes, you know, it's one thing to be, it's one thing to be growing nutrient dense food that is good for you, that is contributing to your health. Um, it's another to have that food, which is not often nutrient dense if it's got chemical on it. But it's the it's the choice you make in buying your food, and, and food being grown with chemical, you know. And it's that old thing about we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be going to an organic you know, shop and going, show me the organic food. It should be. Show me where the food is, and make sure you don't show me any of that chemical food. You know, it's a whole sort of a yeah, labelling and flipping t- around, t- Totally That's flipping around. So let's let's go there because I think it's, um, it's we need to talk about it. It's a significant thing, and I think a lot of people don't think about it. And if they did, I don't think it's too many steps between that
0: epiphany and doing something about it. No, it's fundamental. I mean, and, and look, busy working mothers, uh, fathers. Um no one teaches them this. Totally. You know, and it's fundamental. So,
2: nor, nor farmers,
0: I guess. That's a whole other conversation no, around the use you nor, of nor how, how to get there in the first place. I mean, I grew up in the 50s, so you, you had to have a healthy vegetable garden, and we used to milk a Jersey. I tried to milk a Jersey um, when our kids were young to give them that rich mm. food, but it um, got harder and harder as the <laughs> cost price pressure. Mm. But, so let's get, I always try and take it back to the, the big picture to start with. So as a human species, a modern human, Homo sapiens sapiens, the misnamed doubly wise. Um, <laughs> there it is again. There it is again. We basically co-evolved on the African savannas for you know, a million years or go back long if you want to go to earlier, hominid types, but <coughs> the modern human. Mm-hmm. So the, the average woman hunter-gatherer goes off. Most Indigenous women in, in hunter-gatherer societies can identify at least 500 food and medicine or plants in their landscape pretty good rule of thumb. Australian, Indigenous, Aboriginals no different. Mm. And the men went off hunting. So they were after meat. But they, we, so while we were evolving, that, that the women were giving us that huge variety from those 500 different food and medicine or plants of, of nutrients and micronutrients and phytochemicals. The men weren't just giving us meat. They were giving us meat those animals in that savanna landscape had been browsing shrubs. And we now know that in shrubs, this comes from the wonderful work of Professor Fred Prevenza at Utah State Uni, mm-hmm. who I've worked with, a lovely man, um, written a great book called Nourishment. Um, we know from his work that shrubs in an Australian, an American, African landscape, because they're all long-related and co-evolved, they, they, there are tens of thousands of phytochemicals in them you know, phenols, terpenes, tannins, all that sort of stuff, which got into that meat because mm. those animals were browsing it and, and those animals have the wisdom to de- to detect if they need a tannin to kill a worm in their gut or if they're short of this mineral or that. Humans have that too but we've lost it mm. by and large. And so those early stage humans evolving that savannah, our bodies, our whole systems, our functional and immune and nutritional Systems, our gut systems are evolved to detecting and, and, if possible, sourcing when it's short, that huge range of minerals, nutrients, micronutrients, et cetera, et cetera. So then now contrast that with what industrial agriculture has done. Um, by poisoning the soil biology and simplifying to a few specially bred, often genetically modified foods, we've stripped out, oh, I couldn't put a estimate of the percentage, but it must be in the high 90s, of all those valuable health, nutrient, phytochemical and others that our whole immune and functioning system's adapted for. And, and so that's number one cause of a lot of the modern diseases. Number two is, is the junk food that we serve up in lieu of, mm. of healthy organic grown stuff. And I'm talking about, you know, um, a certain capital letter beginning with M. Type food, um, empty food, empty food, etc., mm-hmm. but, but also a beast-making food and full yeah. of salt and sugars. And then, thirdly, um, we now find devastating evidence um, that the world's most widely used herbicide, glyphosate, Roundup, uh, is is in almost all modern foods, if not all. And it, and it only takes the most minute amounts, in the parts per million, to wreak havoc in our gut. Now that's the crux of all this is where our food ends up and it ends up in our second big brain, the gut. Mm. And the microbiome, the um, all those zillions of micro-creatures you can only see under a microscope, they're the integral guys, guys and, and they're being totally disturbed by this crap that's served up because the whole system in that gut isn't adapted to all this and wonderful scientists like Zach Bush and many others now are bringing in the evidence that shows... That there's this combination of factors. What's not in our food? The crap food that's being served up with fats and sugars and stuff, and simplified proteins, etc. And the poisons now, and and let's pl- chuck in antibiotics and other a few other things.
2: Which glyphosate basically is, and well, that's an true.
0: Antibiotic. Yeah. So I mean, all this is uh, is why. I mean, it's no accident that um, within about ten or fifteen years, behind the exponential rise mm. of the modern industrial um, agricultural chemicals and practices, only in a delayed fashion by 10 or 15 years, there's the same exponential rise in all the modern health diseases, almost parallel curve. Mm. Um, you know, obesity, ADHD, autism, cancers, the whole box and dice. I mean, why has it suddenly happened post 1960s and 70s? I mean, the answer is it's staring us in the face. And
2: why? And there's also, you know, um we're not getting much better at treating it are we in terms of the you know the the, the health i mean we are you know apparently we can call ourselves say you know sapiens sapiens we're supposed to be doubly smart we still haven't sort of worked out cures we still haven't worked out um, we haven't been able to really combat the health thing which is interesting in itself isn't it that there's the, the illnesses are there there's you know my view is it's a it's a it's a wonderful business model that is that we we are we're we're, we're a part of we're contributing to well, we're more more the sort of the output of or the, the, the consequence of, you know, the food Food is crap, it's poisoning us, and the system that we generally rely on to to reverse that
0: doesn't necessarily reverse it. It often keeps us in a no, state right. of illness. It's, it's, and it's making a lot of money for a lot of people. Um, whereas a simple solution, I mean, you and I know... Um, You've only got to go out to your homegrown veggies and they taste totally different to the crap that's served up in the supermarket and that's because of the nutrients and the phytochemicals and all those sort of – and the minerals that are in there. And it's sort of a no-brainer. Um, and that's aside from the mental health aspects of, of growing it and not being captured by the system and uh, the endless round of of um, trying to doctor up um, crap food and make it tasty for your family sort of thing. So... Um, It's it's sort of an upending of all our established Mm. industrial world views, isn't it? But the the solutions are simple. Grow and eat healthy food and get out into nature as as much as you can because there's a mental health aspect here as well. Let's talk about that.
2: (coughs) Do I need to even prompt you with a question?
0: Well, no, because… Just talk, Charles. Yeah. um,
2: (laughs) I don't think you need prompting.
0: You know, it's a sad statistic in Australia and I think America also the highest suicide rate is, in, is amongst male farmers in society. Why is that? Um, and so there's uh, recent great research to show um, – well, I'll go back a step before I answer mm-hmm. that question. Um, there's a wonderful book and uh, we, this is getting late in the day now, Charlie. But um, – <laughs> No, called it's it's eight, last ch- 8 o'clock in the morning. called Last Child <laughs> in the Woods. I just can't remember the author. but it's yeah, a cool. Beautiful. We'll, we'll track it down. Book. Yeah, it's a beautiful book about the importance of nature to humanity. Mm. Even, for example, not just getting children out to play in nature. Mm. Is the, sorry, is it a new book, a newish no, book? No, it's been around for a while. It's yeah, a famous okay. book. Yeah, great. Uh, yeah, yeah, beautifully researched. Yeah. And even to the fact that patients in hospital that can gaze out on trees and nature have mm. a much greater healing rate than patients in blank walls, uh, and that's without looking at the impact of nature on children and playing. And, and then, so we're designed because we grew up, we evolved in nature. We evolved for it, uh, for our mental health, physiological health, and um, now the statistics—I forget them exactly now—by research agencies in Australia like Planet Ark and some of the other environmental groups, but um, the it, there's something like um, for every child in Australia under 10, only about one in four has ever climbed a tree or a rock. No, that's under six, sorry. Mm. Only one in four these days has ever climbed a tree or a rock. And 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 uh, similar statistics are under 10 for uh, time spent uh, outside. And, and then you look at the modern suburb developments, the, the reduction of the backyard and greenery mm. to just um, brick venereal buildings with no out, outdoor space. So this divorcement from nature, and then then you've got to look at what the modern devices are doing, the time that kids spend in front of the devices. So what we're doing in this modern industrial society in Australia is highly urbanised, is we are... Increasingly setting our kids on a path, divorcing them from the food they're involved for and divorcing them from the environment they're involved for, and wondering why we've got huge incidences of mental health, etc. etc. And so that brings me to this study by Professor Jackie Skirmer out at uh, Canberra University, who's been doing really thorough uh, surveys of um, farming. And there's some very stark results emerging over the last few years as the deeper and bigger this survey gets that shows that. uh, the mental health of regenerative farmers, who style themselves that in the survey, is astoundingly better than your traditional farmers. And um, and I just wonder when I think about this, the suicide, it's not just re- debt-related. Imagine spending all your time poisoning your landscape and mm. ploughing the crap out of it and not enjoying nature or, or, you know i'm not i'm saying holies and now but to me i i'd 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 be bereft if i didn't you know just before we came in here i was looking at two mountain yellow robins sitting out here just starting to get their their territory set up for this year's mating and going for a walk we try and go for a walk every day for health's sake and, and admiring you know the latest wallaby or wallaroo or or whatever i mean to live without that to me would you might as well chuck you in prison and uh that's what we're deliberately divorcing ourselves from. And so, you know, uh, urban and, and rural. You know, it's, it's a lot of people in the urban area see more of nature deliberately than uh, farmers sitting in their big tractors looking at their computer screen and mm-hmm. calibrating the spray machines and ploughing the crap out of a landscape and spraying it to death than many urban people going through their, their walks through parkland. So we're a crazy species in many ways.
2: And a lot of farmers don't even eat the food they're growing. You know, like that's also I think a bit crazy. I, I you know only dawned on me the other day, um, and I'm glad I never did try and bake a
0: loaf of bread out of the wheat I used to grow because it probably would have killed me. Yeah, I mean that there's that, that, a lot of iron is involved, aren't there? I mean, one of the great innovative farming pair I work with um and have written about in Ian and Die Haggerty in, in Western Australia who've evolved this extraordinary new cropping scheme that has application enormously worldwide basically growing equivalent yields with 90% reduction in industrial costs and, and their costs um, just by using natural ingredients around mm. the grain when they sow. And they had um, some people out the other day, one of whom was sort of gluten intolerant, and they ate, um, the is now supply their beautiful grain to bakers in Perth, etc. That's right. And this person ate dirty, um,
2: dirty through dirty, clean food. Are they doing it through them? I'm no? not so sure. Yeah,
0: yeah anyway, sure. But, yeah, but that's that's fantastic. But one of the visitors ate one of their loaves because they had no alternative, and she had no reaction at all because the, the, the gluten intolerance had been sort of knocked out of it because it was full of nutrients and proper chemicals and stuff.
2: It's like um, going to uh, Italy. You know, it's not just my experience last year. And i I was a well. I was allergic to wheat. That's all I knew when I was a kid. I was allergic to wheat, which is probably essentially gluten. Maybe back then they didn't know it was gluten. They just said, you're not good on wheat. And Mum used to send me off to birthday parties with my own cake and it was absolutely horrible. I still remember it was filthy. I don't think they knew about making them with almonds. I don't know. She made it, used to make it with dog shit or something. I don't know. Sorry, Mum, but it was terrible. Anyway, I'd go to parties and swap it for the good cake, of course. Um, so, so I have had a sort of a... Um, you know, a reaction or I'm certainly, i better off and still even to this day better without wheat. So in Italy, I can't tell how much pasta I ate because I could, you know. I can eat pasta now, of course, in Australia, but there's is, is absolutely, I totally agree, there's something about it. Over there, um, I could and and I didn't get enormous either, you know. I didn't have the the, the problem. So there's something in that, absolutely. Um, just back to the sort of, I guess, you know, touching on parenting, I'm fascinated with parenting. I'm by no means the world's best parent. Um, I do have a thing, and I, I know I bang on about it a lot, but I, I think about it every day, is our job as parents It is to prepare our children to leave us, you know. And back to your comments, Charlie, about climbing trees and rocks, you know, there's sort of, I guess it's a parent's conscious choice to be living in Suburbs where there's no trees or rocks and things, and that's fine. But also, but so it's, so it's in some ways it's, a, it's an unconscious choice, they've chosen to do it, but it's not necessarily in light of activities for their children. But when you know, I, I think and I find and I hear and I see you know, parents who do then have a child who's looking at a tree who wants to climb it, it's like, no, no, you can't do that, you might fall out, but you might, you know, it's like let the kid fall out and work it out themselves,
0: absolutely right. Yeah, no, and look, you, you can understand that you can't blame people. Uh, for job wise and family security where they live but there are right. really excellent <laughs> programs now to get kids out onto nature from the mm-hmm. suburbs but you're quite right uh, preparing our children to leave us i mean one of the great ways for a ch- for a child to learn self-confidence is to test its boundaries and that is uh, there's a consequence if you don't climb that tree or rock properly and uh uh, and if we don't learn to take risks, we're just going to become uh, uh, follow the leader automatons, and that's mm. exactly exactly right. And to introduce them to nature, uh, you know, to go out into nature uh, and experience it is is just fundamental. And and take risks, you've got to.
2: And yeah, you know, in the world of biodynamics, um, you know, first seven years of life is about understanding yourself and. Developing one sense of self and relationship with nature, and that's you know that's the that's one of the fundamental, I guess, roles and nowadays challenges of children to to by the by the age seven, having had enough connection with nature. You know, and we were lucky; we were in it every day. You know, um, but for a lot of kids, you know, who who don't have that opportunity. Um, I guess, in some ways, not to sound too hard-ass about it, but they're not—they're not given the opportunity to to actually develop one of their core um, core functions, or their their sort of core centering of themselves, a grounding in in being human, you know. To, <laughs> which is which is again a bit sad because it's not of their choice.
0: No, and look, there's other consequences of our increasing divorcement from nature. Um, uh, there's a wonderful. Uh, human evolutionary thinker, uh, Lieberman, um, who's written about this, that all our systems are designed to be challenged if they're going to develop properly. So the more you restrict children from long-distance vision out in an open landscape, and they're focused on a TV or a device in front of them, increasing short-sightedness develops. And so increasing numbers of children at that age having glasses, our whole immune system design is designed to be challenged. You've got to let kids crawl out in the mud and ingest that mud and its bacteria and stuff to develop that internal immune system in your gut. Kids have got to be able to run and jump to develop their long bones. And so what we're doing is breeding, if we're not careful, and it's the evidence is starting to show with diseases and those sorts of consequences, we're, we're developing a, a maladapted species because they're not, we're not challenging them. Allowing them to be challenged in a natural way. Now, that's hugely important. There's another point I'd, I'd make too. I, I was privileged to become good friends because we did our PhDs together with a remarkable Indigenous woman. She's from the Torres Strait Islands, called um, Kerry Arabina. She became Professor of Indigenous Health at Melbourne Uni for a while but then realised that her lateral, creative, brilliant thinking didn't suit that more restricted regime, but she founded a program called "A 1,000 Days for Indigenous people. And that's the time from preconception right through to the child's second birthday. And that sets their life up, the nutrition and those other things we've been talking about in that period. And wow, so that's cool. That applies, that a 1,000-day scenario applies to all humans. And um, if you're feeding them junk food and then... Uh, you know, I know the running and jumping and challenging occurs later, but certainly not the challenging your, your gut microbiome early. So, if we compromise the, the natural feeding and environments, and daylight, and all the rest of it in, in that period, uh, you, you, you can have consequences for life. So, it's it's a really important content.
2: And back to Zach Bush, and it's very very um, re- related to that, his work with biome and and the. Um the, the way that our natural environment, the tree we, you know, we cuddle and the grass we roll in and the dirt we ingest essentially in the air we breathe, you know, can can trigger, you know, the expression of our genes that actually, it's a fa- I mean, it's a fascinating concept. We also, you know, as a farmer, I went to uni and it was a genotype and a phenotype and that's, you know, the, the genotype is this and it's pretty much set and the phenotype is, does it drink this water or that and, you know, is it, get that much grass and get this fat or that skinny like to me it was pretty black and white and then this whole concept of
0: epigenetics that it actually they actually are connected that's right that's um, some world well leading molecular geneticists I, I used to chair a company of them once for a while and um, way out of my league I didn't understand what they were talking about <laughs> um, but some of the cutting edge there they talk about the holobiont which is the, the hollow genome, that when, it, when you boil it down, uh, we all, it all comes back to the microbial world and its DNA. And, uh, and that, that's really a challenging um, thing to get your head around. But uh, this microbiome world in our guts and elsewhere, uh, it's an exciting field and, and I remember, uh, I think I was, Spent time with Zach Bush, we were talking about it. He said, you know, if you go for a walk through a forest, for example, in the air are the microparticles that, that forest has breathed. We breathe them in, they get into our gut. We we are we incorporate mm. that into our own genome. So we we are indivisibly with nature. So if you're gonna put yourself into maladjusted, unpleasant natural environment. That has consequences. You're but, absorbing it, do not literally? So when people talk about, yeah, absolutely. So when people talk about I'm at one with nature, it, it actually has profound meaning when you think mm. that we, by the environment we live and walk, interact with, can actually uh, are actually incorporating and becoming part of it in, as one. Um, I want to stay there. And I had another
2: qu- question about the biome, um, and it's now escaped me. Oh, it was something the other day Zach was talking about. Was fur on tomatoes? No, I listen to it today. Actually, fur on tomatoes, um, absorption of that—it's gone. Doesn't matter. It's we'll come right. back to me. It's fascinating stuff, though, isn't it? Like it's just—it—it it blows the mind to think that. Um, oh, that's where it was. A fung. So, so he he mentioned this in Melbourne in March, that there's a fung there's a fungus that is in our brain, is in our body and has been shown that when a person has degeneration of neurons and sort of brain function essentially, um, Alzheimer's, um, that the fungus is there or appears. I don't know if it's always been there or it just sort of turns up because it's needed. It's recruited. And it, its mycelium, actually recreate the neural pathways for that part of the brain to start functioning again. It actually... It starts repairing the damaged neurons. It's almost like the the um, you know you don't have an arm, you get a you get a, you get a, a, a you know, um, machine arm. This thing, this fungus, actually recreates that that pathway to to aid the function of the brain. I mean, that is just incredible.
0: And I think the bigger picture here is our arrogance. Either too, towards nature and reductionist thinking and simplifying things so we can control is the opposite of there's this huge uh, expansive world out there. We haven't touched a fraction of it yet. And totally. yet, we arrogant humans think we know all about it. But I think a basic rule of thumb is the healthier you can live in a healthier way, you're going to empower these yet undiscovered and, and possibly never known systems. Mm. Uh, that nature's taken millions of years to evolve. So it's, um, if you're going to get into philosophy, to me that the the overall importance of regen agriculture is developing that healthy food for healthy people and a healthy environment is sort of empowering all these unknowns in, in so many unanticipated, indivisible ways. And if we go against that, we're really rolling the dice against not just our health but the planet. I want to jump back to farming. Not that we've gone off farming, but I just wanted to
2: tell me, Charlie, what would be if, if you were to write the job description of a farmer who is doing... What's
0: that one? That's a yellow robin. <coughs> just, did a, just a big poo. <laughs> it's
2: amazing, isn't it? What Beautiful. we're looking
0: at is a mountain yellow robin out the window. They never lived here. They're quite as mice. They hop around us when we're veggie gardening to get worms almost out of your hand. Um, Beautiful. They only lived in the mountains until the 03 bushfires, which burned a lot of habitat, and they've ended up here in our garden and through our bush and all our gardens here. So it, it, they're just uh, they're full time here now. They're just the most gorgeous companions. And
2: they'll find. I mean, I guess they find they find their way to these sanctuaries, don't they?
0: Well, they do. And uh, in that case, it was a disaster, but they've remained. But what we're now finding with working with Greening Australia, good birdos and stuff, is that um, because of the horrendous clearing that our state government both New South Wales and Queensland are empowering through redneck politics. Um, the devastation of the woodlands and stuff is that Australia's most endangered species now—the are, are the woodland birds—and we're now getting mm. permanent residency of some of those at-risk birds now because of you know nearly twenty-five uh, percent of our place we put aside for regeneration. So. It's farmers can play a big role in that, even those sorts of things, and to me that's exciting. But these yellow robins just express that a bit. Yeah.
2: You know, there's something to be said. I think for um, the vibe. You know, it's like the castle. What is it? What is it? Oh, it's the vibe. You know, it is the vibe of the of the of the of the attitude and the of and of the the what is it? It's the philosophy. It's just the in, yeah the, the the intention and the the resonance, you know, the frequency of thinking that animals pick up on, you know. And I think th- there's a lot to be said for, um, yes, there are areas and if habitats are recreated and, and rehabilitated, birds will find their way there. Um, and there's the physical, I guess, attraction of animals to a space that's that's being healed and so on. But I, I really believe there's also like a, you know, call it energetic attraction. They pick up on like, oh, these are nice people. You know,
0: yeah, they've planted trees, but this would be a nice place to hang out, you know, yes. as an example. I, I don't don't discount that. And we're mm. not just talking about animals, we're talking about plants. Totally. Yep. They want to be
2: here. Yep. There's yep. a great story that Hamish and I only sort of discovered, or, or, um, someone who attended one of our biodynamic workshops uh, last year. Told a story that in her area up on the mid mid coast or north coast in New South Wales, a truck had overturned and had, had cattle, quite a few cattle, and and um some had had to be put down, some died, and, and then some escaped, and I there was maybe four or, or half a dozen escaped, and they were found in the backyard of someone who's using biodynamics about ten kilometres away, and the backyard was like two acres,
0: so it wasn't as though, I mean they had they had pretty much had the whole of the northern rivers to Escape to they would be detecting things in nature that said this is healthy. It could have been something Mm. invisible, could have been energy, could have been lots of things. Yeah, there's so much we don't know, isn't it? And I think, isn't that fantastic? We don't know at all. I love it.
2: Yeah, I love it. The fact that we don't, and I hope we don't ever absolutely sign off on that one. I was just about to, uh, before the beautiful yellow um alpine wren, mountain wren, Uh, mountain yellow robin. Yep, robin. God, I need my twitches book on me. Um interrupted us there um, and I'm glad it did the what would you what would you write on the on the job description of a farmer that you would like to see you know taking over your land taking over next door what what, what are some of the what are some of the roles responsibilities that you would have on that job description
0: well the first one is being kind to other people uh, well not the first one but it's up there I mean you want someone that walks the talk not just in regard to the landscape but to other humans. Um, I would require that they have the humility to respect that complex adaptive systems can never be fully understood and all we can do is work within the parameters to empower them. I mean, that this is not the sort of job description you're going to write, but this is... Oh,
2: no, I'm going to write it. Get into the guts of it. (laughs) No, I'm I'm actually quite serious. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that needs to be needs to be more documented and acknowledged as, yeah. a, as, a, as an overarching philosophy for, for a job as a farmer. I yeah. think it's really important stuff.
0: And that everything you do should be aimed at healing the landscape function, which empowers the whole system to work better. That every your utmost attempt should be to eliminate all human-made chemicals, only use natural ones, and that uh, your treatment of animals should be gentle and understand their psychology. I mean, there's a whole. You could go on about ten pages. But it's basically, um, if you're going to regenerate landscapes, it involves a whole lot of thinking that goes with that, which is basically about care and love of the land, animals and people, if you want to get it to its basics, um, philosophical level. I
2: like it. We'll get together and write that one day. Okay. No, I'm dead set serious because I think it's just one of those things that um, I think almost needs to be acknowledged and and this is the attitude because it's you know quite often quite often i believe that where people can't come unstuck in jobs and they might have a really clearly defined job description but it's the things that aren't said it's the unwritten ground rules that aren't actually identified and there are too many assumptions made around the attitude or the the philosophy of a business that isn't that aren't identified up front and 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 then things happen that aren't conducive to good relationships
0: or, or business management. Yeah, and a lot of it's education, training, paradigm. I mean, I wrote about him a book about um, turning up to clients when I used to visit them when, when I stud. and they'd, within the house backyard there's a healthy veggie garden. But then you go out to hop in the ute to go out to the sheep yards and the Big machinery was there and, and uh, huge piles of chemical drums behind the shed and stuff. And I called it the veggie garden paradox. They grew their veggie, veggies for themselves and family and yet regarded the landscape out there as some sort of industrial inert substance. Um, yeah, Interesting. This will will do, will develop that one. My, another brain, another my time. brain is slowing. I'm sorry.
2: Oh no no! Don't be so, don't be sorry at all. We we, we should we've been punching on it. I'll a
0: just I'll just finish that. Ah, oh, see it just
2: kicked in. Yeah. He just put another carbon rod in
0: the projector. I'm giving a warning. I'm running out. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Empty lights flash. I mean, I I remember driving to clients who had wonderful, um, lovely sheep, which they looked after. And then you'd walk back to the house or get your ute and here is dogs on chains mm. that had dug trenches one and a half foot deep off the end of the chain, which told me they'd hardly ever been let off the chain. I mean, you know, there's, we compartmentalise our thinking and uh, um, it's such an interesting thing, the, the paradigm and the mental compartmentalisation, isn't
2: it? Oh, totally. Um, and I think it's one of the most important things. It, um, let's jump to um, – I had a – I did put the call out this morning to people who might have some questions for Charles, and one was that of um, certification, your view on certification of regenerative food, I think, essentially is 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 the question. And, and, you know, should it be certified?
0: If it's so, what would some of the parameters be? You know, um, just trying to think when it was. <clears throat> In the last 18 months I had the privilege after my book came out in America of of, um, working with Patagonia, uh, which is a wonderful company. I used to be a mountain climber, so one of my heroes then was uh, Yvon Chenard, who founded Patagonia, and and we actually ended up staying, uh, my wife and I, with the Chenards. And then I worked with their headquarters, et cetera, and they just founded a new food division, which I spent a day working with, getting to know, and... um, they were just rewriting a description of the food they wanted to put because the term "organics" had already been captured by the Walmarts and the big, the big companies. So you can you can draw up your certification certificates and stuff, but the big end of town and the big powers can usually subvert it and capture it themselves. So I'm not answering your question, but um, <laughs> any human-designed system like certification um, can be captured and um, I'm not – I mean, we grow healthy meat, um, but at this, at this stage we haven't got the energy or the time to specif- specifically market our own brand. But we um, – I, I can just see, uh, you know, big problems with mm-hmm. <laughs> um, an over-prescriptive certification system rather than the good old farmer's markets where there's a there's the personal guarantee that uh, – it is grown healthily, and uh, the landscape is is regenerative, etc. Uh, look, I don't really know enough to get into that the depth, but uh, no, I thought that Patagonian example was really interesting that they had to, to completely abandon uh, what had been quite useful, but was eventually captured by the big end of town, and and um, mm. so it's 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 going to be an ongoing issue of, of how you actually. I think personal relationships, but I know if you're trying to. Develop a major international brand, say for your, your wool fiber or certain foods. You probably you've got to have guarantees of its uh, provenance and all that. But um, it's not a simple field.
2: Not simple. And I, someone asked me the other day, and I, I simply said um, it should be more about the outputs, not the inputs. And it should be uh, you know as simple as is it chemical free or chemical status. So how healthy is it, or how how unhealthy is it, and also nutrient density, you know. um, You can pretty much guarantee if it's free chemical and it's nutrient dense, if you went back to that farm, they're going to be practising regenerative principles there anyway. So without sort of having to tick boxes and, you know, people, um, you know, uh, avoid things and and things getting tied up by the wrong people, you know, just the outcomes might be a a good place to look. Yeah. And look, Uh, there's
0: some very good instrumentation already coming into place. It's going to blow out of the water. I mean, I can imagine uh, if you've got these instruments that can measure a lot of now, phytochemicals and minerals and all the rest of it, imagine going down some of the big supermarket shelves. You, you wouldn't get many beeps coming out of your machine. It'd be, it'd be pretty well a lot of zeros. <laughs> That's
2: a bit beeped. It might, they mightn't be allowed to beep. They might just have to flash <laughs> green or red. That's right. <laughs> it might be in a big alarm, anyway. like a Geiger counter. Um, Charlie, what? Uh, uh, something I meant to ask you earlier, but it's taken me an hour and 40 minutes to, to ask you, when I drove down here today, um, I had no conception of, I guess, the um, of the of the um, of the of the state of the Monero at yep. the moment. Yep. You know, I, I hadn't been, I hadn't been here in summer. Um, in some ways, I'm glad I didn't, but um, sometimes I wish I had just to just to really appreciate that and understand it. Um, still, doesn't look good. Um, However, when I turned around the corner and 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 drove up Seven Park, um, it looks fantastic. What 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 is it that? that why is it that? Um, why isn't it so that some people, some farmers, who see evidence of very, you know, somewhat subjectively, but you can't you can't say, oh, you get more rain than me, or or, or you know, those that that see it, and it's hard to deny that there are very big differences that if they were to implement um, would be a benefit in many ways, why don't they change?
0: Yeah, good question. Um, psychologists call it cognitive dissonance where our brains will rationalise something away, um, paradigm the paradigm blindness that uh, you will come up with your reason, oh, well, they get more rain or they've done this or done that. Um so what's happened is we've just gone through the worst drought I've I've managed um, in uh, nearly fifty years. Mm. Um, so we we start making started making selling decisions early, and put them, you know, some of that good KLR marketing stuff says put money in the money bank and grass in the grass bank when you can at the right time. Mm. Um, and then as it got worse and worse, we just. Um, I didn't want to lose all our breeders and some of our young stuff, so we've, we've we've been adjusting all this year and only just brought the years back now as we've just had four or five inches of rain. and So we were able to keep our cover, even though it wasn't 100% because we had shocking winds that blasted some of the finer material, but all the perennials, it's largely covered. And so when we got um, – it was about 60, 70 mil the other day in only 24 hours uh, – and this is maybe why some people don't see it. They, they stay inside enjoying the rain. But uh, my wife, Fiona, and I deliberately got out at about the 20 mil mark or a bit less and went for a drive and uh, see what was happening. So where our ground had been covered and not grazed big, and I'm talking about a lot of the Monero actual dirt was blowing. I thought it was there'd been people ploughing around here. Well, yeah, that's right. It looks like it's been ploughed. Yeah. So our country... Um, there was no water running, no water lying on the surface, but um, not far away without pointing sticks. Um, at somewhere between the 15 and the 20 mil level, um, mm. it was just pouring off in sheets. Mm. So their dams, yeah, they're full, it's great, uh, but they're full of mud and or crap. Sheep, sheep, yeah. And our yeah. dams, uh, out of about 15 dams, um, there's only two with any half full on on the steepest country and the rest of them haven't got a cup full in them. So, because it's all gone in, because we had the cover, we had the deeper roots uh, and it wasn't compacted and that was because having sold down, we then got most of the rest of their stock off the country altogether. And it's
2: it's ironic that farmers beg and pray and hope that it's going to rain because it's dry and they need the water because um, you do when
0: you're a farmer and then it finally arrives and then it doesn't stay very long. It's sort of like, you know, it's... It, it's Yeah, it's that paradigm thing. I wrote about in the book, driving home one day on the Monero, um, a couple of farms that will remain nameless, but same country side by side nearly. Mm. And uh, it was a really big rain. It was a six-inch rain, which is big for the Monero. Mm. And um, so I, I got home... about the two-inch mark, I'd been in town, so I got the details later at that time of day. We we, we weren't far away from these properties. We were into regenerative grazing by then. Anyway, I tipped out the rain gauge at the two-inch mark and uh, I'd passed a place down the road that had been belted in the drought and it was sheeting water at two inches. Place not far away, same country, at six-inch mark, mm. the water was only just starting to run. So I guess my conclusion was here we are in the one of the driest continents on earth, dry district, where rain is your secret. One person tripled their effective rainfall in that 24 hours compared to the other uh, just through management. And, um, and we went about we need more rain. I mean, he just tripled it. So to me it's sort of no brainer stuff.
2: Maybe people like to think oh they get all oh, those people they go to church
0: more or something. There's yeah, lots I think of, lots it's, of reasons, it's it's that paradigm it? thing. It's, uh, it's it really is a, a very confounding issue. It's fascinating.
2: Yeah. Um, and not to be a smart ass it's just I mean, I, I guess I, I was in this I was doing the same thing.
0: Yeah, I've been totally. and done it myself.
2: Totally. Totally. Yep. totally. I was pretty silly. Um Conscious of the time, yep. um, and I had another question about urban application. In you know, lots of talk about broad, broad scale grazing and that sort of thing. How can how can you suggest people might implement some of the things we've been talking about? Um, you know, from a, I'm thinking more sort of the food side of thing, implementing some practices or at least supporting those practices who are in urban areas.
0: Number of ways. Uh, let's have a look at this one. Um, Studies been done in America and it'd be equivalent in Australia. If you analyze the amount of water, fertilizer and chemical put onto the urban garden lawn, in America it's equivalent to about the fifth biggest crop. It'd be similar in Australia. Now imagine if you turned that over to a combination of growing healthy vegetables and some biodiversity plants for your honey eaters and other birds. <laughs> uh, the impact would be enormous. Mm. Um both for the environment but for the human health. Uh, And so that's just one example. Uh, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be proud of their garden, but let's rethink a concept that's come out of lush green Europe that uh, we think is beautiful. A a beautiful, diverse, healthy vegetable garden and some native flowers with full of honeys and stuff is another view of of beauty. But the other way um, that would be crucial is if... Supporting the um, the urban garden in places like Melbourne, um, Ceres and, and places like that. Um, you learn a lot. You can buy wonderful food uh, and then you can go home and apply that in your own backyard where your lawn might have been, for example. Um, uh, supporting schemes like box schemes, uh, you know, Food Connect in Brisbane. There's other examples that are, I think are going to start developing into uh, whole catchment and region s- supplies, so if you yeah. want to look after your family, try and source, it. what I'm getting to is, if you want to support regenerative farmers, if you can't do it yourself or you can't grow it yourself, get in and support farmers markets, those box schemes those sorts of things, get involved in your community in planting green belts and, and native patches to change the environment and, uh, and, and start involving your, your, your children, you know, schemes like um, Stephanie Alexander's food schemes in mm. some of the cities, once kids grow their own greens, they start eating them. Yeah. If you try and put green in front of a four-, five-, six-year-old, I mean, they turn up their nose, at the drop of a hat. So that it's all sorts of psychological uh, of ways of doing it and uh, there uh, are some good schemes in Melbourne where uh, they teach um, an ecological literacy approach from you know, kindergarten right through to year six. And so we need... More and more of that. To me, if we if we're going to deal with the core curriculum courses, maths, English, and a language and and uh, science and stuff. But how about um, nature and ecology uh, as being the other uh, fifth fundamental core or whatever?
2: Maybe they should just call that longevity. That's the longevity subject. And health. And that. health. Yes. Well, yeah. is all part of it. The yep. result of health, happiness is longevity. Yep. Um, just very quickly, I, I did. I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but they were involved in a, in a, a scheme in Sydney and. They had some, um, I won't say special needs kids because I don't exactly know what the, what the definition of one is, but but they were ADHD and they had learning disability, let's just say, learning learning sort of challenges. And they put them in a garden and they taught them how to grow food and they co- taught them how to cook it. And they said the behaviour change, the kids would never have eaten broccoli ever in their life, not because they didn't have access to it, because they just said, oh, this is bloody green rubbish. Yep. They grew it, they ate it. So there's you know, happiness factor, there's achievement, there's purpose and the behaviour change, like literally their behaviour, you know, they weren't running out the door, they weren't screaming at the teachers and so on, they were, was incredible just through, um, this is over time, not just you know, after one day, but there was a nutritional benefit and there was a, I guess it was a sense of purpose,
0: you know, and a, and a, and a connection with nature, you know. Well, that's right, don't discount that uh, getting their hands dirty in the soil and yeah. uh, interacting with nature as well, Yeah.
2: Charlie, um, I think we better wrap it up there. Um I've got so many more questions when I save it up for another time. Um we I can't tell you how much I enjoyed the chit chat. Don't see you often enough. Um vice versa. It's been yeah, good fun. It has been good fun. And um I'm I'm gonna have to split this one in two. This 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 mammoth one. <laughs> you know, you, you you've done something. You've you actually broke David Marsh's record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he loves the yarn doesn't he he's great and he's a good yarn and uh,
0: a lot of wisdom there (laughs) oh totally
2: that's why i didn't want to um i didn't want to stop as i haven't wanted to stop today but we must now charlie thank you so much for your time um and we'll do it again another time when and and we can talk about projects and your you know your whatever you're doing for the rest of for the next i don't know 40 years you reckon It'd be good. Yeah, hang around. I wouldn't
0: put your money on it. Hang around. <laughs> hang around, hang hang around the earth for will a while. Live that long is the issue. oh long age aside, we haven't got onto the anthropocene stuff, but uh, that's, an, that's for another time. That's
2: another time, It's true. Thank you, Charles. Okay, I you, really enjoyed that. Yeah, much appreciated. Good on you. Thanks, mate. Well, there you go. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that nearly two-hour session with Charlie Massey there in his office. He he hadn't had much sleep. The night before, um, he'd had an unsettled sleep, I, I believe, so he, he pushed on through. Uh, he said he was getting foggy, but my God, he was um, as clear as a bell. And someone else who's as clear as a bell is Sarah Wilson. She's our next guest. Uh, next week's episode of uh, The Regenerative Journey, uh, Sarah uh, I guess, shot to fame, really, with her um, publication, I Quit Sugar, and was a very well-respected journalist before then. Um, she's released a number of books, and uh, we'll be talking all about that uh, next week uh, with Sarah Wilson.
1: This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate, and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.